Well, again, good morning and welcome to, to Build. I know we are uh, in the, I think in the home stretch, you know, of a few more, few more meetings throughout the rest of the year. And um, if you can, we'll, we'll do what we do most weeks and turn over the back of our binders and take a look at the Build disciplines. Um, and as we look at them, There's, a, there's something in common with all of the, the build disciplines, and if we read the very first, the top of that, uh, build is about building the disciplines of faithful leaders. In discipline one, the heart, the faithful leader shepherds his heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God. Discipline two, the home, the faithful leader is concerned for those in his home and shepherds them toward God with the word of God. Discipline three, the faithful leader with a heart and home oriented toward God and his word steps into the GBC family to shepherd others towards God with the word of God. Discipline four, the faithful leader prayerfully pursues the character of a qualified deacon or elder in the church, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Discipline five, the hermeneutic, the faithful leader disciplines himself to carefully interpret the word of God to discover what God meant by what God said in his word. So as we think through the disciplines again this morning for a few minutes, I want to call attention to the aspect that these things have in common, and that is the faithful leader. Build is about equipping and training men for faithful leadership. And what does it mean to be faithful? Firstly, it's helpful to think of God's faithfulness. Uh, when we speak of God's faithfulness, we think of passages like Deuteronomy 7-9. Know therefore that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. What's highlighted in Deuteronomy 7-9 is, here is God keeping his covenant for a thousand generations. What he said to the first generation continues to hold true for the second generation. It continues to hold true for the thousandth generation. God's word can be trusted because God is faithful. Well, one way to speak of God's faithfulness then is the, the perfect reliability of his words and his deeds. His revelation of himself is perfectly reliable. What he has revealed about us in his word is perfectly reliable. It will not fail. And God always acts in perfect conformity to his word. And to his character. He is supremely trustworthy and he is reliable to do what he said and to act consistent with his nature. We can take him at his word. Because of God's faithfulness, we can trust God to continue to act in perfect conformity to his revealed words in the same way today as he did when the Apostle John penned his epistle. When Moses penned Genesis through Deuteronomy and when the Father spoke to the Son in eternity past. First um, John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we know that God will forgive our sins when we confess them? Because he is faithful. In the same sense, men are to be faithful. Men are to be reliable, 
trustworthy, consistent in their pursuit of these disciplines. God is faithful and with perfect consistency acts in conformity, conformity with his character and his will. The faithful man is characterized by a consistent walk to follow the Lord in conformity with his character and his word. So when it comes to caring for our hearts and our homes, one way to speak about this man is to ask yourself if you are characterized by a steady pursuit, a diligent pursuit of caring for your heart, caring for your home, and caring for others with God's word in the church, as you pursue faithful handling of God's word, or a handling of God's word that seeks to rightly uphold what God said, not man. This morning, Jacob's going to be talking about the diligent care over our hearts that's required and spoken about in Proverbs. And are you characterized by diligent pursuit of these disciplines? Secondly, there's another nuance or aspect to what it means to be faithful. And that's connected less with the biblical word faithful and more with the New Testament concept and word of faith itself. What is faith? Um, often the word faithful it, when, it, when it's used in that sense and translated as faithful is, is, is more focused on the reliability, the trustworthiness um, of, of, of the man. Um, but now when we look at the word faith or to have faith or often translated to believe, um, it, it is a slightly different concept, but they're not unrelated. Hebrews 11.1 1 helps us think about what faith is. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So faith is an assurance of something that is not seen. Faith is to entrust ourselves to something else, something that we're not beholding with our senses. It is to trust in something else, to submit ourselves to something else. And who is the object of our faith? Biblical faith is our entrustment, our submission. There we go. Our Faith, faith, then, is our entrustment, our humble submission under, our dependence upon, and our yieldedness to God and his words. It's to rest upon what God has promised solely because of who he is as faithful and dependable. That's a, that's a little dark there. <laughs> I think I can read. Thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> So faith is so faith is to rest upon what is what God has promised because of who he is as faithful and dependable. So faith is genuine when we entrust ourselves to what is not seen. Uh, not to what is not experienced, but to what God reveals in his word. So our faith is not grounded in tangible signs of emotion or the things that we have seen to be true. We don't evaluate God's truth claims by our experience, but in humble faith, we humbly submit ourselves and entrust ourselves to God's word because he said it. So biblically, the, the verb form of faith I mentioned is, is typically transferred, uh, translated believe. So Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So belief or having faith, um, if, if faith 
we don't have the word to faith something, to faith in something, but it's to believe in, to entrust in something. Belief then is something that's not just mentally assented in the mind, but in Romans 10.9, it's believed at the heart level. So the man who entrusts himself fully to Jesus in Romans 10.9, who entrusts himself fully to Jesus as Lord, who's fully convinced and assured of the truthfulness of the gospel, and entrust his salvation fully to the Lord and God's means of salvation on God's terms is the one who is who has faith in that in that context. Right? So it's in that sense that the object of faith in the New Testament is often equated with the saving message of the gospel specifically, or all of God's truth generally. Jude 3, for instance, says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. The, uh, the character of God, um, faith, uh, faith then is, is to fight to cling to the unchanging character of God and in in submission to his word. Um, entrusting ourselves to his word and humbly submitting under his word, convinced of its truthfulness, even what is seen or what we experience in our fallen understanding doesn't seem to conform to our perception of reality. So the Christian life then, is to be a life that is lived by faith. So Galatians 2, 20 to 21 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The Christian life is a life of walking by faith. Um, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 6-7. Hebrews eleven six talks about the basis of faith. Or that faith, I'm sorry, the faith is the basis of a life that is actually pleasing to the Lord. Hebrews eleven six and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So it's in this sense, it's proper to speak of the faithful leader and build as a man that is characterized by faith, or full of faith, or a man that is characterized by a life of walking by faith. So that is when he approaches his quiet time, when he approaches discipline one, he comes to the Lord fully convinced that he is to entrust himself to every word of God revealed in Scripture about his sin. Everything that God reveals about his sin is true. He is convinced that everything he, God reveals about his heart is true. He also entrusts himself to God's assessment of his heart, not his own. Because like Jacob will be speaking about, he humbly submits to the faithfulness and truthfulness of what God's word says about his heart, about his motives, he also entrusts in God that what God says about the only remedy for his sinful heart is true. So do you walk entrusting yourself to what God has promised in the gospel about our freedom and our, 
our freedom from bondage to sin, about the way of the fact that he has provided a way of escape in every temptation that comes before us. Do you believe that's true? Do you entrust yourself to that true when it doesn't feel like it, when it feels like I can't do anything but obey the sin? Do you, do you believe what God has said is actually true? And are you entrusting yourself to that when it doesn't feel true? Are you believing and trusting yourself to the fact that God is good and does good even when my current circumstances don't feel like that? Do I fight for faith to believe and to entrust myself to what he says? Lord, help my unbelief when, I, when I'm having difficulty believing those things. In his home, the man walking by faith entrusts himself to the wisdom of God. Entrusting himself to what God has said about discipline, about leading his home, about caring for his wife, about sacrificially loving his wife, about the roles of men and women. Even when that path feels out of touch with what the world is telling us. Even though by experience that path seems really difficult and I don't always see the fruitfulness of trying to be to sub submit myself unto that. Lord, I'm doing what you say. I'm... I'm I am instructing my children the way you say. I'm disciplining the way your word says. And yet I don't see, I don't see my children walking in faith. There's got to be, there's got to be another way. No, I'm going to believe that this is what, this is God's, God's wisdom. This is the plan that he has for me. Do you trust that God knows what he's doing when you step into your home? That God's word is trustworthy and dependable. This is maybe how you approach yourself. What about the, how, when you step into the lives of those in your home? Is this what you're aiming at, that you would help your children, help your, your spouse, help your roommates to walk by faith, to gently help them to humbly submit themselves to God's word and the truthfulness of God's word? Um, my, my daughter recently purchased a, a new car. She's got a job. She saved up for it. She put a down payment on it. She was scheduled to make the first payment to me on Tuesday. She's been driving her friends around. She's the one with a nice shiny car. On Thursday morning, she was excited to pick her grandmother up from the airport in her new car. She's an appreciate. This is God's kindness to her. And last night, that car was crushed. She's okay. She's okay. As a teenager, what... The world is crashing down around me. What does stepping into my daughter's life look like? What are the truths about God that she needs to be helped to, to entrust herself to when it doesn't feel like it's true? God is good. God does good. This situation was for your good. The car is not yours. It's God. Everything belongs to God. We're just stewards of what he's given us. So in my, in, in my homes, am I looking to help come alongside those in my home to walk by faith and entrust themselves to what God has said, even when it doesn't feel like it makes the problem go away? That, that's, not the, that, that's not the Lord's plan, is just to make our problems go away, but that we would walk by faith and entrust Him. Trust ourselves to Him. Entrusting ourselves by faith to God's Word and its sufficiency also has profound implications on how we step into the lives of others in the church and how we handle God's word. So men, as you consider whether you are pursuing being faithful leaders in your homes, are you pursuing faithfulness? Number one, are you pursuing, are you pursuing these disciplines with diligence, dependableness, 
constantness, uh, that kind of first aspect of faithful that we talked about. Is there a consistency to your pursuit? And secondly, are you pursuing these things di- diligently, consistently, in a way that is humbly entrusting yourself over and over to the truthfulness of God's word, grounded by a conviction of the truthfulness, authority, wisdom, and graciousness of God? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your sending your Son to become wisdom. Lord, we thank you for for granting us faith, for the faith that was necessary and through which salvation comes. And Lord, help us. Faith, Faith isn't over, but faith is even more active now as we are your children. Lord, help us to walk by faith, trusting what you say is true when it feels untrue because of our fallen understanding, our fallen assessment of things. Lord, your word is true. You are true. Lord, help us to submit ourselves and entrust yourself to you, to your son. The power of the power that you have given us by uniting us to your son, by giving us of your Holy Spirit, the power to actually resist sin. And it feels in the moment that that is really difficult. Lord, your word has given us magnificent and precious promises that are true. Help us, help us in our unbelief and to submit to us, submit to your word as true. You My name is Jacob Handler. I know I know most of you, but not all. And I'm one of the, the pastor elders here at Grace. It's, it's my privilege this morning to open God's word. Um, and we're going to be in Proverbs 4.23 learning about the foundational build discipline heart garden uh, make sure you have the notes i'm going to follow that outline pretty closely it'll be helpful for you to to take notes on and uh, remember where we are in the lesson we're going to be seeing that guarding your heart isn't just a sometimes task right it's rather guarding your heart must be the task that you aim to do above all else because your heart is the source of your life. The top of your notes on page one, they have some helpful comments by Charles Bridges that serve as a helpful introduction for the trajectory that we're gonna be going on. He says, if the citadel, which is your heart, be taken, the whole town must surrender. If the heart be seized, the whole man, the affections, desires, motives, pursuits, all will be yielded up. The heart, the citadel of man, the seed of his dearest treasure, it's fearful to think of its many watchful and subtle assailants. So let it be closely garrisoned. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Let's pray together. God, I beg that as we have your word open in front of us, as I speak and I seek to expose the truth of your word, God, I ask that you would guard and guide my words. I beg that you would reveal yourself to us through your word and cause us to worship you. God, I pray that you would grant us understanding by your spirit. And Holy Spirit, please grant my heart and the heart of my hearers here 
a submissive posture before you as we approach your word. These are your words contained in scripture with the same power that when you spoke brought everything into existence. These words are more powerful than we can comprehend. And God, I beg that my words would be faithful to your word. So finally, transform us, sanctify us, perhaps even save some as your word is taught this morning. God, use this message to make me guard my heart more diligently. In Jesus' name, amen. So look down at Proverbs 4.23. You can see it in various translations on the first page of your notes. There's The outline to the verse is self-evident. It's pretty obvious. There's three parts. There's a what, a how, and a why. Let's identify those three parts together. The what is the command. It's keep your heart. You could say watch over your heart or guard your heart. How are you supposed to do that? With all vigilance, above all else, with all diligence. And then why? Why do you do that? Because from your heart flow the springs of life, or your heart is the source of life, or it's the wellspring of life. That outline is incredibly easy to understand, right? There's a what, a how, and a why. You probably already have the verse memorized by now if you didn't already. Above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. We're going to start this morning sort of backing into it. We're going to look at the why, to un- the why of the command, that the heart is the well or the source from which all other behaviors spring. And then understanding that, we're going to be better equipped to get to the how and the what uh, commands, or the, the how and then, and then the command of the passage. But first, have you ever sinned? and thought, where did that come from? Almost like the action felt foreign to you. Maybe exploding at your roommates, a short temper with your wife, anger at your children, entertaining or acting on sinful fantasies, laziness, lying, gossip, sharp speech. Or on the flip side, what about like endurance and trial, love for your neighbor, selflessness, patience, self-control? Where did that come from? And you know the answer. Those sins, or fruit of the Spirit, indeed everything that you do, good or bad, every action, thought, deed, or word, can be thought of like water that's flowing from the well of your heart. That water will reveal the nature of that heart. And Proverbs 4.23 will help us get at the root of these sins, or better understand the source of any uh, change uh, towards good works that's been prepared in your heart. And it'll prepare us for the great gospel solution at the heart of the sin problem and guide us towards walking in purity of, of life. So the inspired Solomon gives a profound illustration for your life, and I hope that you remember this for the rest of your life. You can think of everything that you do, everything you think, everything you say, all of your life is flowing water, and it has a common source, your heart. So think about it like this. There is no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Or put another way, 
There is no part of your life that your heart does not affect. Right? You can't cordon off parts of your life and say, I'm going to compromise over here. It won't affect what it won't affect this other part of, of your life. There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart, and there's no part of your life that your heart does not affect. Or the character of your life reveals the nature of your heart. All of that can flow out of that simple statement, the heart is the wellspring of your life. So the image here is of a city's vital water source. Pure water at the source can provide everyone in the city with pure water. But if the source is contaminated, there would be no hope for pure water in that city. And this is a, a problem because the Bible describes our natural heart, our life source, in some pretty unflattering terms. Consider Jeremiah 17, 9. This is at the bottom of page one. What does it say? You probably know this. Verse, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or maybe even more clearly, um, speaking of man's natural heart in Genesis 6, 5, when God looked at mankind, this was pre-flood, and was moved to kill everybody except for Noah and his family. Open your Bible to Genesis 6-5 and look at God's assessment with me. This is, this is pretty key. Genesis 6-5 says, Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. What did God, who can see the heart clearly, observe in mankind? Every intention of mankind's heart was only evil continually. That's devastating. And remember, the flood did not do anything to fix man's heart problem, right? That description of man's heart as only evil continually is just as true today as it was then. So if there is no part of your life that doesn't flow from this wellspring... And if this wellspring is deceitful, desperately sick, and only evil continually, what would you expect um, natural man's works to look like? What would you expect their life to look like? You can see I, I made it like an addition problem down there. Genesis 6.5 plus Proverbs 4.23. The natural and logical outworking of that is exactly what you see. Romans 3.10-12, through 12, quoting Psalm 14, 1 through 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. No one naturally has a good heart. And no one, no, not even one, does good. At least no one who was born with this heart still acting from this heart, does good before God. Apart from God, we are a bunch of wicked people with unrighteous lives. Why? Because we were born with wicked hearts. This is the description of unregenerate man living in an unmixed sinful condition. But remember, God doesn't leave the Christian in this situation. But speaking of the new covenant with Israel, 
that Christian Gentiles get to um, experience, get to enjoy as well. Turn over to page two. God says in Ezekiel 36, 26, you may want to turn there because it is so sweet and worship God as you read this. Listen to his promise to New Covenant Israel. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promised Israel that he would give them a heart transplant. And that would be their only hope for cleaning. This hasn't happened for Israel yet, but it is what God does for his people when he saves them. For me, this is particularly vivid imagery. I I have the privilege of playing with hearts all day long. um, As I administer anesthesia, I, I take care of a lot of heart failure patients. And it is sobering to see what happens in a body when the heart goes bad. I don't know if you guys have have seen somebody after, say, a massive heart attack or after they've developed some sort of cardiomyopathy where basically the heart turns somewhat to stone is what it looks like when you're seeing it it pump. Normally a heart, nice and supple, when you give it preload, when you give it blood coming in, it stretches to accommodate that and squeezes it out vigorously. It's why you can exercise so well. You exercise, the blood comes back to your heart. No matter how much you put in it, it gets that blood out. But when your heart turns into like heart of stone after a heart attack, virus, some other cause, it can't. It, the pressures back up. The flows don't go forward. A heart that doesn't work well, you can tell because the body looks like it's full of death. Kidneys don't function. Brain is sluggish. All your organs shut down. You you can't even walk. Your muscles get weak. Cognitive function deteriorates. Lungs fill with fluid. The body is incapacitated with weakness and lethargy, ultimately leading to misery and death. And it is so sweet. It's, It's remarkable to see how a dying body is rejuvenated. If you see a patient or person who is on death's door with a heart that's somewhat like stone and they get a heart transplant. They look like a new person. Their brain is sharp, their muscles work, their organs recover. It's a, it's a sweet illustration that we've only been able to see in the physical practicality in the last maybe 50 years or so. And it is even more profound because that person's heart wasn't truly dead. It wasn't truly stone. And the heart transplant, it doesn't last. But for you, Christian, you had an old, dead heart of stone. If you are a Christian, this is not just theoretical. Hear this. This is your testimony. This is you. You had an old, dead heart of stone. And if you're here just playing religion, if, you, if you're here thinking, I'm going to add a little, a little God to my life, a little Christianity, Christianity, a little Bible, but you haven't repented, turned to God from the heart. If he hasn't given you a new heart yet, this is still describing you. You had an old dead heart of stone and God gave you a new 
heart of flesh. You were born again, John 3, 3. You are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. God has given you a new heart. At regeneration, God declared us righteous and he changed us from the heart so that for the first time, you would have the ability to obey God and love God from the heart. We still live in a mixed condition, right? We still have our sinful flesh. We are able to sin, but we have new hearts. And for the first time, you're able not to sin, able to please God. You are actually able to shepherd your heart from sin and to God. Now with this new heart, having been declared righteous in justification, we've been set on a trajectory to increasingly live out that declared righteousness through sanctification. We used to be slaves to sin. Why? Because your heart was sinful. We used to be disobedient from the heart. Turn in your Bible to Romans 6.17. Romans 6.17 tells us what God has done. And just look how Paul starts. He says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become, underline this, circle this, whatever you need to do, to remember and to praise God with this. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. John Flavel, the 17th century Puritan, said it well. He said, the heart of man is his worst part before salvation, and it's his best part after. Praise and thank God for that. Seriously, right now, if we can grow comfortable with this news. You have probably heard this, read this before. But praise and thank God for his regenerating work in his heart. Familiarity can sometimes rob us of the opportunity to worship. We oftentimes aren't as thankful as we should be for the things that we are most familiar with. The same sun that melts the wax can harden the clay. But before this glorious truth of the gospel, fight right now. That as you sit under the blazing, hot, magnificent truths of God's word, that your heart would be soft, melting wax in worship and thanksgiving instead of clay hardened by familiarity. It's one thing to know these truths. It's another altogether to be the recipient of them. So Proverbs 4.23 told us that the heart is the wellspring of our life. That would be horrible news, and that would be the end of the story if it were not for the great news of the gospel, that when God saves us, he changes us from our very heart. And that change is not superficial. It cannot be superficial because it's changing you from the very core of who you are. 
If you're a Christian and you have been changed from the heart, let everything else you learn today, everything you resolve to do today, sit under the shadow of that massive truth of the gospel. You can do nothing to change your heart. That work you, we are dependent on from God. But we must guard that new heart. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, this is the bottom of page two, he wisely advised his church, till the spirit has regenerated the soul, all outward religion will be but a dead and pitiful thing. And you can totally see why, right? If you try to clean up the outside of the glass while the water inside is full of poison, you've done no good to change the nature of the water. And that's what religion does. Religion apart from heart change um, is a pitiful thing. But to make, up a, or to make up a religion of doing or saying something that is good while the heart is void of the spirit of Christ and sanctifying grace is the hypocrite's religion. But praise God, he has no interest. He has no interest in a hypocrite's religion. He has no interest in religion at all. But through the gospel, by Jesus' work, at the cross, God gives us new hearts. Christian, your heart is precious, not only because it is the source from which your life flows, but also because it was made new through the gospel. You were a slave to sin because your heart was sinful, and now you're a slave to righteousness. So imagine a city. Right? Let's go back to this illustration, the city with the, the wellspring. Imagine a city with a poisoned well. That city could not flourish. It would be full of death. And, those, and then imagine that one day a king came and provided them a new well, dug a new well. That, that city only had poison before. Now for the first time they had the taste of new, fresh, pure water. Their old well was full of poison, new one, clean. Immediately, what would be the result in the city? The city would be new, full of life. Those who were once made weak, anemic, dying from poison would have a taste of that which they could never know apart from the action of that king. Pure water. Those people, what would, they, what would their disposition be towards that new well? How would they act towards that new well? They would know the effects of a tainted well, and they would know the, the joys of purity you know what those people would never think? I wonder how much poison I could let back into this new well and still be okay. Right? That, that thought must never cross their mind. No, they would guard that new well with all vigilance because they would know that their very lives depended on it. Christian, we are those people. Our hearts were unmixed in their sinfulness you know experientially what the outcome of that was. And at salvation, for the very first time, you could glorify God from the heart. So guard your heart. In light of this illustration, consider the quote at the very bottom of page two from Charles Spurgeon. 
where he actually talks about the build disciplines. We didn't invent this, right? Grace Bible Church didn't invent the build disciplines. We're just another church in a long line of faithful believers that are committed to these things. Let's hear the way that Charles Spurgeon talked about it in light of, of this illustration. Look for the disciplines of heart, home, and ministry here and the effects of your heart on those things. The poison of the soul is only sin. And this is like poison in many respects. Poison, wherever it enters, stays not here, but diffuses all over the body. And it does not cease until it has infected all. Such is the nature of sin. Enter where it will, it creeps from one member of the body to another, from the body to the soul, till it has infected the whole man. And then, from man to man, to man, till the whole family. And it stays not there, but it runs like wildfire from family to family, till it has poisoned a whole town, and so a whole, whole country and a whole kingdom. Woeful experience proves this true. So right now, I'm going to ask a question and answer this to yourself. Don't answer generally. Answer specifically. What poison are you dabbling with? Remember purity. Long for it. Don't stop at anything to guard your well. For the sake of your life, for the sake of your home, your small group in our church guard your heart with all vigilance because from it flows the springs of life this truth that the heart is the wellspring the source of life leads very naturally to Solomon's command right we couldn't help but even go there it's a natural outflowing of this truth that the heart is the wellspring of life and it's the what at the beginning of Proverbs 4.23 guard your heart Sin is the poison. Purity is to be protected. So guard your heart. Notice with me that as Solomon is speaking to his son, he gives this instruction as a command. It's an imperative. It isn't optional. And it's not passive. It's active. The word used here for guard, watch, or keep, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe an alert sentry on a watchtower guarding valuable resources. A city dependent on pure water would obviously place guards or sentries around that water spring to protect the purity of the water. How much more would a city at war have guards on watch knowing that a very real threat could appear at any time? Christian, we have a precious, newly pure water source with ever-present threats seeking to poison the well. We must guard our hearts. Right? You have threats from without, temptations, and threats from within, your flesh, and we must guard our hearts. How are we to guard our hearts? Right? We've already talked about, made some allusions to sin. Sin is the poison that will poison your heart. It is what you have been freed from slavery to. But let's look at David's answer to that. How are we to guard our hearts? 
how can we keep the source of our life pure? David, in essence, asked that exact same question in Psalm 119. And so turn there, read with me. It's written, in case you don't want to or you don't have your Bible in front of you, it's at the top of page 3. David asked, how can a young man keep his way pure? Right? From what we've already covered, you know what the solution is. How, how can you keep your way pure? Well, by guarding the purity of your heart, right? But how, how does he answer that? How can you keep your way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. David guarded his heart with God's word. David guarded his heart by seeking God through his word. So as you guard your heart, you will be protecting it from evil. Right? You will be careful who and what you allow close. You will be careful to fight temptation, not to think that your heart can tolerate just a little bit of evil, a little bit of compromise, a little bit of sin. Right? That goes against the very nature of this word purity. You will protect your heart from exposure to things that would poison the wellspring of your life. But we will see here that more, fun, more importantly and more fundamental to the guarding of your heart, it isn't just what you keep out, though it must include that. But it's what you keep in. Seek God with all your heart. As we guard the wellspring of our heart, we must be shepherding our hearts to the word of God, to get the God of the word. In your guarding of your heart, make sure that you are not shepherding your heart toward pharisaical behavior-focused religion or merely avoidance of sin. Though the behavior must be the outworking and avoidance of sin must be an integral part of this. But you are shepherding your heart with God's word. You're guarding your heart with God's word to seek God with your whole heart. I want to make reference, um, and I'm going to be careful with time, uh, to the book of the month, which is called God's Battle Plan for the Mind. It's a book on the Puritan practice of biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is completely different from maybe the common usage of meditation, which is often emptying of your mind, right? That's when you think of, oh, meditate, there's all these apps, meditate, clear your mind. That is the opposite of what the Bible means when it says biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is filling your heart and your mind with God, with truths from God's word, thinking on them deeply to have the practical outworking of those in your life, the application of God's word. And there was a whole culture of devoted Christians for uh, centuries called the Puritans. They knew the importance of not just reading God's word, but thinking on it deeply in a way that must affect their lives. And so some of the um, most time-tested, well-spoken Puritans, basically the author David Saxton just takes extended quotes from them, interspersed with some helps to, for you to apply it. I cannot commend this book to you enough. Um, not as a replacement of God's word, but as a tool to help you um, 
in your pursuit of God through his word. There's lots of good ones, but this would be an excellent one to use. But ultimately, whether it's that or just time in God's word, you see that guarding your heart isn't just, oh, I need to, I sinned, I need to stop that. You're going to learn, I think, next week about biblical repentance, and that is so important. Um, and it's not just, oh, I need, to, I, need to, I need to keep sin out, I need to read God's word more, but it's, it's actually pursuing God with your whole heart. So what do you do when you open up God's word? What do you, as you're reading, what is your goal? Hopefully all of you are in God's word every day. There's some really helpful questions that, that I've developed for myself. Um, it's the way I, I teach reading God's word to my, my kids. And it's every time you sit down, be able to answer the question, what did, from what I learned today, what does this reveal about God? And how must this affect me? There's lots of good questions you can ask of God's word. But if you ask at least those two questions, what does this that I read reveal about God? How must this affect me? You are now setting your, yourself up to interact with God's word in a very helpful way. And what, how must this affect me? Well, when God is revealed, worship. We already talked about that. Don't skip the worship. When sin is revealed, repent. When an opportunity to obey is set before you, pursue it. When God is revealed, worship. Turn to 1 John 3, 2 through 3 with me. You might be, I wish I could dwell on this. We only have an hour. I could talk. I have so much. If, if I had more time, I would, I would keep going on this. But I know that, that you might be feeling, I actually am a little bit as well. Like I'm hearing about this new heart. And doesn't match up perfectly with my experience. I, I know God has changed me from the heart. I know I'm a new creature. I know that I can obey God from the heart. Right? But, but when you think about man and, and you think of where you are, you are not yet glorified. I am not yet glorified. For the first time, we can obey God from the heart. But we still sin. And I love 1 John 3, 2. It takes this reality. In Christian, it, it offers a comfort. But I think the same hope and the same encouragement as, as we get from Psalm uh, 119 for how, how we deal with this heart guarding, this heart shepherding. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. You've been not merely adopted but you have been made God's child by being changed from the heart into a nature that looks like him and you are going to be transformed more and more into God's image you are God's children now you don't have to wait to become God's child once you've been perfected you are God's child now Christian but what we will be it hasn't yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Right? Your 
on that path towards transformation. When he appears, you're going to be like him. Why? How? How does he accomplish that? It's not magic. I mean, it's, it's miraculous. But he actually tells us here the means that he will accomplish that glorification. Because we will see him as he is. In everyone, that's not just you, everyone who thus hopes on him purifies himself as he is pure. Christian, God has changed you. He's even made you his child. But this change in nature, although drastic, is not yet complete. What we will be hasn't yet appeared. One day, we will see God as he is. In a moment, we will be made to look completely like him. Well, in the appropriate ways that we can be. This flesh that so easily entangles, that's so easily contaminated, will be removed and we will be pure, even as God is pure. But this passage doesn't merely make us give up hope of purity now and wait for that day. No, I think this passage gives us hope that we are God's children now and purification is possible. And how? How do we, in hope on him, purify ourselves now? Let that purity take hold of us now. Well, first let me ask, how will purity come on the day when Jesus returns? Look at the text. We will see God as he is. And so we don't have to wait for that day to see God as he is. Where where does God most clearly reveal himself to us now? Where can we see God most clearly now as he is? In his word. So as David keeps his way pure by seeking God in his word, the New Testament Christian is to hope on God, fixing the gaze of his heart on him as we look for him revealed in his word. And as we hope in him, fleeing heart-contaminating sin, as the verses which follow these verses say, we're purified more and more into what we shall be as glorified children of God when he returns. So do you get this? The means of pursuing and guarding your daily purity of heart and then the means of God's ultimate heart purification, they're not dissimilar. A pursuit of God by setting the gaze of our hearts and one day even our eyes on him is the means of both our sanctification and glorification. Today, that's primarily in his word. One day it will be face for face, face to face. I can't wait for that day. But at the same time, we don't have to wait. We can see God and pursue him with our whole hearts in his word. So how must we do this? How must we be guarding our hearts? Well, above all else, with all diligence, with all vigilance, Christian, we have a new heart, new love, new affection for God, but the flesh within, Satan and temptations without are constantly assaulting our heart, seeking to taint it with sin. So set up a guard for your heart by, above all else, not being content to let even an ounce of sin in. Rather, we guard our heart by seeking God with our whole heart through his word, all the time, every day, no higher priorities, no days off. What do you do 
I have to ask myself the question, what do I do with more attention than I give to guarding my heart? The answer according to God's word ought to be nothing. So I'm not talking about guarding your heart like you might put up a chain link fence or install security cameras at your business. That's what you do for like sort of important things. We're talking about the most important thing. You know a city, especially back in this day, would have guards on site all the time, probably some of their best if they were wise, to guard the purity of the water from which their very life would flow. The United States, for its most important assets, like NORAD, puts it deep inside a mountain, 2,000 feet of granite on every side, enclosed by thick doors, blast valves, multi-million gallon water supply, a multitude of sensors always on, assessing for any and every threat that it knows might come. That's the kind of heart guarding that God's word is exhorting us to. It's not a set it and forget it kind of alarm, but an always on, above all else, kind of heart guarding. Do you see guarding of your heart as just one task among many? Maybe you can take a break today and make up for it tomorrow. Do you see the purity of heart doesn't work like that? Solomon commands us that the way that we must guard our heart is with all vigilance or above all else. And when God, through his word, commands you to do something above all else, uh, you ought to listen. I ought to listen. This isn't a suggestion. It isn't something that would be good to do in addition to all the other things we do. It's the most important task of your life. It must be done in all of life. Right? It's not merely something you do in the morning when you read God's word and then you're going to guard it again the next morning. You do it in all of life, in everything you do, and you don't do anything with your life that would be set in opposition to this above-all-else task. How does that affect your entertainment choices? Your use of your smartphone? Um, the way you work, where you work, how you work, what you do with your, what your plans are for the day. That doesn't mean that all you do all day, every day, is read God's Word. <coughs> But his word ought to be on your heart and mind throughout every day. And what you choose to do with your day cannot be inconsistent with that pursuit of God through his word. It certainly can't look like, I wonder how much poison I can let back in this well and still be okay. Think of like the secret service, how they would protect the president. They have to be always on. Any moment of lapse could be devastating to their above-all-else task. Think of that city with their water supply. They can't be on just 8 hours out of the day or 12 hours out of the day because the threats are ever-present. And this pure, precious new water source made new by God in the Gospel is that important that precious because it is the wellspring of our life and it was made new. This is sobering. As we think of the need to diligently guard our hearts, I want to consider the one who wrote this book of Proverbs. 
and this command, Solomon, he knew this fact, right? That if a life is to be pure and holy unto God, the heart, the source had to be pure as well. He saw his father David. He saw the dangers or knew of them in his dad's life, heart compromise with Bathsheba. But he saw a man who, um, king, a man after God's own heart. He probably heard teaching like Psalm 119, verse 9 and following. But being convinced, and this is so important, guys, being convinced of the necessity of heart guarding is not sufficient. Agreeing with Solomon regarding this verse does not automatically mean that you are guarding your heart. Being at build and using heart shepherding lingo, going to small group, asking questions like, how are you guarding your heart? How are you shepherding your heart? That's not the same thing as doing it. Being excited about guarding your heart doesn't mean you're doing it. Consider Solomon with me. Read 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. I believe this is somewhere in the notes. Yeah, bottom of page 3. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. Turn there with me and read. If it's actually really helpful to read the whole book of 1 Kings running up to this. Because you see, Solomon didn't get here all at once. And tragically, it doesn't end here if you keep going. You just hear little compromises, even while he's doing really well. Good prayer for wisdom, dedication of the temple. But you see sprinkled in here, oh yeah, and he married, married Pharaoh's daughter. And he married this, and he built the. Anyway, as you get there, you see how it builds through little heart compromises to this point. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the sons of Israel, God told him what's going to happen here. He said, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God, as the heart of David his father had been. David sought God with his whole heart. Solomon, through a series of heart-poisoning compromises, had his heart turned away. His heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh. And consider the effects on Solomon's heart, his home, and even his kingly ministry due to a series of compromises in the area of heart shepherding. His heart turned to false gods. His children did not love God. And within a generation, 
the kingdom was ripped into, inundated with idolatry, and finally God's people were marched out of their promised land to exile in chains. Little compromises that wise Solomon was sure that he could handle poisoned the well and all that flowed from it. Solomon knew Proverbs 4.23 better in many ways than we do. He wrote it. But guarding your heart is much more than knowing this command or even being convinced of its necessity. Guarding your heart is much more than being excited about guarding your heart or using guard your heart lingo. We must actually do it. Yesterday's success at guarding your heart does not guarantee tomorrow's. And above all else, more than you pursue food each day, more than you seek to provide for your home, more than you diligently care for your children, more than you make sure you're successful at work, more than anything else. And those things are all good. Guard your heart. All other aims will be futile and ultimately end in devastation if you are not above all else guarding your heart all the time above all else no days off god has given you a new heart he's given you the holy spirit and he commands you and enables you to guard your heart christian you were saved by god's grace and we will only guard our heart by god's grace right we were saved by grace through faith you're not going to be perfected by deeds of the flesh. In fact, the deeds of the flesh are set like works, trying to work up some religion. I got to make it look good. I got to try harder. That is not the message of this. Right? Your heart was made pure, made clean by grace through faith. This pursuit of God through his word that ends in sanctification only comes by grace through faith. But it will not come apart from actually guarding your heart. That's the outworking of faith for the Christian. So I have a question for you. How, how well have you been guarding your heart? Just like a city might monitor its water. Like, okay, I think I'm doing fine, but we need to do periodic water tests to see is, is there poison in here. Uh, we too should evaluate what is flowing from our wellspring to see what the source is like. Um, maybe you haven't been guarding your heart. Maybe, maybe you have. But today, guarding your heart is your most important priority. And let's, let's look and evaluate um, how you're doing. C.J. Mahaney uh, wrote, We study our hearts in the shadow of the cross as a means of protecting our hearts from the daily presence in opposition to, of sin. And if you don't watch, you will inevitably weaken. What does he mean by shadow of the cross? This is so important. We must watch our heart, but we must always be mindful of the cross, of what Jesus accomplished for us in the gospel as he gave his life for us. In the shadow of the cross, we find forgiveness when sin is revealed. We don't have to hide our sin. We bring that to him, the one who has the power over it in repentance, confession, agreeing with him that it is sin. And we find hope. If 
you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, right? But if we confess our sins, he's faithful. And he can be just when he forgives you your sin and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness found at the cross does not mean that God is not concerned with your obedience. No, God is more committed to your holiness, your purity of heart than you and I could ever be. He died to secure it. So in the shadow of the cross, as we pursue purity and repentance from sin, we see those sins in proper perspective as forgiven, but not our master. Also in the shadow of the cross, obedience is put in its proper place. You and I do not obey in order to earn God's pleasure or to earn eternal life or to merit righteousness or standing before God. But in the shadow of the cross, we recognize that our righteousness could not add one iota to the perfect righteousness that you were given. You cannot accomplish the task that only God could do, which is to cleanse you from the heart, declare you righteous, and bring you safe to the end where you will see him as he is and in the twinkling of an eye be made pure even as he is pure. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. So we guard our heart from sin and pursue God not to obtain holiness but because God died to make us holy. So I've given you a few questions that I want you to consider now and then over the following weeks to evaluate the purity of your heart, to pursue purity through heart guarding. It's your homework. Um, there are six questions that I came up with to help you evaluate your heart guarding. Um, you'll see these A is on the bottom of page one, and I have B, C, D, E, F. And then I want you to come up with at least three more. The questions I have are, do you usually sense a presence or absence of affection for God? That's the water flowing out of your heart. What does that reveal about the heart source? The, the, the wellspring? Do you have an appetite for God's word? Are you daily shepherding your heart to God in his word? Do your daily routines, including your entertainment choices, internet use, use of free time, reflect that you're guarding your heart above all else? How do your prayers reflect the vigilance with which you're guarding your heart? What lures your heart away from God? How diligently do you believe this? I want you to come up with two or three of your own water purity check questions. These ought to be non-flattering. Right? Look for the areas where you recognize that you might be particularly weak, particularly vulnerable. Look at the things that might be like warning signs that you're not doing well. For me, it's I can see when I start losing self-control with eating, exercise, or hitting the snooze button on my alarm clock in the morning. Okay, I'm starting to prioritize pleasures, my own pleasure, my own comfort over the disciplines that I know um, God uses in my life for self-control. Those are non-flattering questions for me. What might be some for you? Where does your thumb go when you launch your smartphone? Where does it go first? I, I don't know what the, um, what the question might be for you, but, but try to get non-flattering 
purity questions to say, when, when I don't have a good answer to this, it reveals that I might not be guarding my heart above all else with all vigilance. And then share that. Not with everybody necessarily, but with your spouse, whoever's discipling you, whoever you're particularly close with in your, in your small group. Somebody that will actually help you pursue God through his word as a means to putting to death these deeds of the flesh and pursuing God in purity through his word. Um, we are out of time, so I'm going to wrap up. And as I do, I, I just want to remind you that heart guarding is not behavior modification. It must not be behavior modification. Paul David Tripp wrote in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, if my heart is the source of my sin problem, then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. It's not enough to alter behavior or to change my circumstances, but Christ transforms people by radically changing their hearts. If the heart doesn't change, the person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of an external pressure or incentive like the pain of discipline. But then when that pressure or incentive is removed, the changes disappear. <coughs> Think of the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. They looked good. They lived to make people think that they had it all together. While inwardly from the heart, full of dead men's bones. Think of the water that flows out of your life, flows out of your heart, the deeds that you do. Make sure that your heart guarding is aiming at purity of life from a pure wellspring, not cup full of poison water that's polished and really clean on the outside, or pipes that are nice and clean, but from which only poison water flows. Never be content with behavior modification in your pursuit of holiness. That's religion. That's hypocrisy hypocritical that is not what God aims at and that is so far from biblical Christianity that they are unrelated God has already done the most amazing and important work in giving us new hearts so men of Grace Bible Church by the grace of God and the shadow of the cross for the glory of God let's guard these new hearts together let's pray God thank you for the gospel. Thank you for not leaving us in our hatred and enmity towards you. Thank you for while we were your enemies, you died for us. You've made us new creations. You've cleansed us from the heart. Thank you for these heart transplants and for the hope that one day we will see you and be made pure even as you are pure. God, I pray in the meantime, while you have us here on earth in this mixed condition, God, I pray that we would be characterized as a people, as a church that guard our hearts above all else and that we would guard them by fleeing sin, but even more importantly, with our whole hearts pursuing you through your word. 
God, let us not wander from your commandments. I pray that we would be more holy because of this. I pray that this would, these truths would affect our thinking and our lives going forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.